the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back. 602-508-0960. Before I get to a few other items in the news, let me just uh, throw this out one last time, uh, as I seem to have gotten a lot of responses uh, as the hour was closing out on this. I'll let you respond if you want to respond more. But just reflecting over the Memorial Day, I was thinking out loud in the last hour that doesn't it seem like these holidays come just a little weightier, a little heavier um, of late this year, last year, July 4th, Memorial Day. Those that help celebrate uh, the best of America, whether by sacrifice or in the case of um, Independence Day birth. Uh, doesn't it feel like there has been an effort to quell patriotic sentiment? And doesn't it feel like it has been quelled? Do you see as many flags on homes and U- American flags on U.S. homes as you used to. I was making the point once upon a time you would drive down any main street or forget that any 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 um, residential street and see any number of flags. Maybe every house had a flag, maybe every other one, but a lot of them and you wouldn't think twice about it. Today you may drive down a similar street or that same street and see one flag and you wouldn't think twice about it. Something has changed and it's not just it's not just um, that we are told 1776 was less important than 1619, some date 156 or so years earlier we'd never heard of. But it's that we were told 1776 was a lie and that our birth was not about freedom and equality, but servitude and immiseration. That's part of it but not the most important part. The most important part is that that's what's being put in schools and curricula. That's part of what I might call the ground war. But there's an air war. There's an air war. And the air war is in other parts of the culture. Think the willingness uh, with which we were um, uh, uh, ready to accept that standing for the national anthem was a political problem a matter of politics, and a matter of defending racism when it was anything but and one of the most unifying things this country did together. Think about were we more unified before the national anthem became controversial or less? Try that on for size. Try that question. Who's asked that before? Now that the national anthem has become controversial, are we more united or less? That's part and parcel of it as well. That's part of the air war. First, go for the children. While you're doing that, do the immediate on television. And then, of course, we can have the U.S. Department of Education force-feeding critical race theory into our curriculum that tells us that race is the dominant factor of American public life and history and nothing else, not ingenuity, not freedom, not intellect, not creativity, not equality but race and race 
based erected barriers that still hobble us today, as even Joe Biden today said in a speech in Oklahoma. We are going. What? What do you got for me? Tell me the whole speech. <laughs> the Joe Biden speech. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Today he could say in his speech that America, his goal will be to help rid America of systemic racism. I don't know when you end it or how you know it's ended. Perhaps an African-American president or vice president would be one way to show that it's ended without any more legal barriers to achievement in this country, but evidently not. It first requires an entire rewriting of our history and our curriculum and an entire realignment of what it means to love this country. To love this country no longer means teaching its foundings and its originating principles um, that we once all, left and right, Democrat and Republican, considered beautiful. Um, No, it now means teaching the awfulness of it and what a long, miserable train of abuses this country's history has become and stands for to this day, which explains why someone in Oh, Ferguson, Missouri, gets shot without a gun in his hand. All of that is what critical race theory also adds to the equation. In helping bring about a diminished patriotism in this country, how do you love a country you either do not know or the culture, or the culture tells you is unlovable? That is the question. How do you love a country you do not know or that the culture tells you should be unlovable? These are the real main questions I think that answer why these holidays just feel a little bit more subversive to practice. If you've moved into a new neighborhood or bought a new house or moved into a new house and recently put up an American flag, did it feel just a little weird in a way that it might not have 20 years ago? And by weird, I mean subversive. It's as if to be a patriot in loving this country has become not, as I say, just down market, but to be condemned. So we had a caller in the last um, in the last hour who was very smart about this, as he is about everything. And he said there's three reasons, and I want to add a fourth. There's three reasons you might see less expression of patriotism, which is related to the sadness and weight that you feel with it. He said, uh, for some people, um, emotions take over. There's something emotional going on. Um, and that could include, of course, influences in the family. Uh, it could include um, uh, having students coming home from college and besting their parents, where their parent, whereas their parents thought that this country was you know, pretty good, warts and all. Their child comes back having been steeped and soaked in um, Howard Zinn and Ibram Kendi, only to tell the parents that they live in something much like a handmaiden's tale. Uh, Number two, fear of bullying. Fear that you might uh, have your house pelted, or uh, it might be the unpopular thing to do to hoist an American flag or show your patriotism. Three is an interesting one, according to our caller in the last hour. Maybe these people are in on the... uh, are in on the financial game here. There's a lot of money to be made in anti-Americanism. A lot. Maybe they're in on it. But the fourth is the one I wanted to add, and maybe the caller would agree with it. But the fourth one that I wanted to add is that larger and larger proportions of Americans don't believe in it anymore. 
they don't believe in it. Such that a governor can say America was really never that great without pause, without choking, without not saying it. Listener Charles writes, the holidays are heavier because they are threatened with cancel culture elimination. We have already marginalized Presidents Lincoln and Washington by lumping them in a President's Day to provide a more convenient three-day weekend. We now, we, excuse me, we know about the assault on Christmas and now Biden is relegating the 4th of July to a child's treat given to us if we are good. The fact that patriotic holidays need approvals like the one planned for Mount Rushmore or other forms of permission is where we have come. And that indeed is heavy to me. But the bigger tragedy, the bigger tragedy, Charles writes, and this is exactly right, the bigger tragedy of President Biden's move to eliminate the 1776 commission, which he did on day one, he said they do a lot of things on day one. Who knew that would be one of them? But it was. He eliminated the 1776 commission, the commission to study and teach American history. Charles writes, the bigger tragedy of President Biden's move to eliminate the 1776 commission, especially now as he patronizes, is not the act of eliminating, is not the act of eliminating the commission as much as the tragedy of few people seeming bothered by its elimination. That's right. That's right. It's not that Biden eliminated the commission. That's what a progressive socialist leftist would do, as people tell us there are, that Joe Biden is a moderate. Those of us who said he is not a moderate, we're not surprised by it. And it's thus not the most important thing. The most important thing by ending the 1776 commission and scrubbing its findings, by the way, scrubbing its report off the official government websites, which is never seen that done before. I mean, I'm sure it's been done, but I can't think of it being done. One government report being totally scrubbed for partisan purposes. Unbelievable. The act of all that is not the tragedy. The tragedy is how few people seem bothered by it, seem bothered by it. Anyway, maybe I'm wrong. Um, maybe I'm, I'm just wrong and these holidays are not more heavily celebrated. And let's hope I am wrong. But I'd love your thoughts. 602-508-0960. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Maybe I'm uh, I'm just wrong, and maybe you didn't sense what I was sensing that these holidays are a little, little uh, these holidays celebrating America seem to be felt a little heavier um, than 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 they have in years past. And if you're not feeling that 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 is a good thing, I was looking up polls over the break. Uh, Gallup particularly uh, measured polls of the patriotic state and feeling of America. It has steadily gone down over the last 20 years. It's, it was at its lowest point in 20 years last year. Um, do you know this story, the great writer, adventurer, and map enthusiast Bernard DeVoto? He was writing to his friend, uh, the historian Catherine Drinker Bowen, who, among other things, wrote The Miracle of Philadelphia and Yankee from Olympus. She was losing heart. She was... Um, 
getting discouraged in writing about American history. Uh, she was wondering, were they important? Was her celebration of her country and its achievements right? Um, and Bernard DeVoto wrote her this, and I quote, If the mad, impossible voyage of Columbus or Cartier or La Salle or Coronado or John Lydiard is not romantic, if the stars did not dance in the sky when the Constitutional Convention met, if Atlantis has any landscape stranger on the other side of the moon, any lights or colors or shapes more unearthly than the customary homespun wisdom of Lincoln or the morning coat of Jackson, well, I don't know what romance is then. Ours is a story mad with the impossible. It is by chaos out of a dream. It began as dream, and it has continued as dream. Down to the last headline you will read in a newspaper. The simplest truth you can ever write about our history will be charged and surcharged with romanticism. He was right to instruct her on that, and the question is what happened to the romanticism. I had a caller earlier uh, uh, in the show as well. I think it was Jim. I think it was Jim. And we were talking about Democrats of yore and Democrats today and how some people, you know, may not want to put up a sign in their yard for the politician they support or a proposition or a ballot initiative. That's different to me. That's different than an American flag or some kind of nod to Americana or American patriotism. And that's what the left has done. That is one of the great crimes, is they have made what used to be a bipartisan love of this country a partisan thing. And it didn't start with, but it certainly concludes with, I hope it concludes with, I hope it does not go farther, it may, that the patriotic duty of the year is to wear your mask. That is what the president says when he speaks on patriotism. It is your patriotic duty to wear a mask. Now, we all know what patriotism is and isn't, and that certainly doesn't, dis dis that certainly doesn't require a lot of discussion right now. My only point is when that's all you hear about patriotism from your president, maybe it's hard to blame the rest of the American people for not having that sense of love and filial obligation as well. But in that call with Jim, we were talking about those Democrats of yore who didn't think that way. Tip O'Neill would have never thought uh, the way the progressives think today. The leadership of the Democratic Party in those days uh, would have chafed at the notion that they didn't have or couldn't have an American flag on their door. I bet Tip O'Neill did. I bet he did. In any event, it made me think about the difference between Democrats then and today. And I'll tell you another difference. That is – it's – the word I want is um, – it's, it's not been um, exacerbated, but it's a difference that has been exploited. That's the word I want. It's a difference that has been exploited unnecessarily. It's a, it's, 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 it's a, solution, it's a solution in search of a problem that we have been hoodwinked by, and that is the need for critical race theory in our academics. You've heard me talk before about this funny irony. Um, when um, when uh, National Review first published its very first issue, which would have been, uh, what, 1955, I think. In 1955, when National Review published its first issue, uh, William Buckley outlined problems with liberalism 
1955. And one of the specific academic public intellectuals he mentioned, I think he might have been the only one, was Henry Steele Commager. And you're forgiven if you don't remember that name, but he was a big intellectual, famous academic in the 40s and 50s and liberal. And students throughout most of their high school, if not college, American history classes read the textbook written by Henry Steele Commager. He was the author of the big textbook on American history, at least the biggest one back then, this great liberal. And it's called A Concise History of America. And I – or A Concise History of the American Republic, sorry. A Concise History of the American Republic. Right away in the title, you get to know that this country is a republic. That's kind of an interesting thing that's been lost. But you go through this textbook, and I've reviewed American history textbooks. If you go through this one that was the biggest one in the 50s, there is no shortage of writing about the crimes and problems of America, including slavery. I mean, it is not buried. In fact, in the preface, they get to it right in the preface. Can I read it to you from the original? It's kind of beautiful in its own way. This is the American textbook students used to get. This is in the introduction, just talking about the the arc of American history. The revolution and its aftermath. This is the big liberal of 1955, okay? This is the big liberal William Buckley wants to, uh, you know, challenge for importance or for impact. The revolution and its aftermath put slavery well on the way to extinction north of the Mason-Dixon line, but in the south, slaves were so numerous that to free them would have shaken the economy and social system. Quote, I tremble for my country, Jefferson wrote, when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever, close quote. Yet proposals for gradual emancipation were defeated in the southern states. Several states, however, encouraged voluntary manumission, uh, freeing of slaves, voluntary free, freedom, free, freedom of slaves by the masters, and thousands of blacks, they used the N-word, the decent one, and thousands of blacks obtained their freedom by this means. Practically every southern gentleman looked upon slavery as an evil, but a necessary one. In time, it seemed so necessary that it ceased to appear evil. It's poetic, isn't it, in its, in its description of the horror that was slavery. And they make no bones about what slavery was and became and the other problems of racism in this country. That was the big liberal in the 50s. My point is if you would want Tip O'Neill today instead of Nancy Pelosi, give me the liberals that Buckley fought against and founded National Review against today over the liberals now who tell us – give me the liberals then over the liberals now who tell us that the South was right. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. One of the things you've heard me ask over and over again is, will there ever be an accounting for what we did to ourselves, allowed to have done to us, and what our leaders did to us in the name of politics, power, and panic, the three Ps, politics, power, and panic? Um over COVID. Will there ever be an accounting? 
Will there ever be an apology? Will there ever be recompense? Thomas Frank is a name you may or may not find familiar. He is a um, Democrat. He is a Democratic author. He is an author of books on the Democratic Party and for many years was the House Democrat at the Wall Street Journal editorial page, much like uh, Juan Williams is the House Democrat at Fox or something like that, I suppose. Uh, they have a few at Fox, and, and, and they now have Bill Galston at the Wall Street Journal, but it used to be Thomas Frank. And he's writing in The Guardian what is a remarkable, I think, piece of introspection. He writes, like all plagues, COVID often felt like the hand of God on earth, scourging the people for their sins against higher learning and visibly sorting the righteous from the unmasked wicked. Respect science, admonished our yard signs, and low COVID came and forced us to do so, elevating our scientists to the highest seats of social authority from where they banned assembly, commerce, and all the rest. We cast blame so innocently in those days. We scolded at will. We knew who was right, and we shook our heads to behold those in the wrong playing in their swimming pools and on the beach. It made perfect sense to us that Donald Trump, a pol politician we despised, could not grasp the situation, and that he was personally responsible for more than one super-spreading event. Reality itself punished leaders like him who refused to bow to the experts. The prestige news media even figured out a way to blame the worst death tolls on a system of organized ignorance they called populism. Yes, the Washington Post had an editorial saying that populism is the most lethal part of the pandemic. But these days, Frank writes, the consensus doesn't consense quite as well as it used to. Look up consents. We all know consensus. Let's look up consents, Bill. We're going to need that. These days, the consensus doesn't quite consents quite as well as it used to. Now the media is filled with disturbing stories suggesting that COVID might have come not from populism at all and not from a man eating a bat, but from a laboratory screw-up in Wuhan, China. You can feel the moral convulsions beginning as the questions set in. What if science itself is in some way responsible for all of this irony of ironies? What census mean? What's what census mean, Bill? Consents mean. Consents means to agree. Hence the word consent. Frank goes on, I am no expert on epidemics. Like everyone else I know, I spent the pandemic doing as I was told. A few months ago, I even tried talk to a Fox viewer out of believing in the lab leak theory of COVID's origins. The reason I did that is because the newspapers I read and the TV shows I watched had assured me at every occasion that the lab leak theory wasn't true, that it was a racist conspiracy theory that only deluded Trumpists believed in, that it got infinite, infinite pants on fire ratings from the fact checkers. And because I am the sort who has always trusted the mainstream news media, Tom Franks writes, he continues, my own complacency on the matter was dynamited by the lab leak essay that ran in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists earlier this month.
A few weeks later, everyone from Dr. Fauci to President Biden is acknowledging that the lab accident hypothesis might have some merit. We don't know the real answer yet and probably will never, but this is the moment to anticipate that such a finding might ultimately mean. What if this crazy story turns out to be true? Wait till I give you the rest of what Thomas Frank has to say. I love that. The problem when we were supposed to trust the science was science itself and exactly the reason why some of us really recoil when we're told to trust the scientists. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If you are tired of seeing those utility bills and thinking about going solar, the answer to that thought is my friend Solar Sandy. I got to see her today. We got to spend some time together. It was great. She is a good friend who is not only trustworthy but has actually figured out how to truly zero out your power bill. It's so important when going solar you do it the right way, and Solar Sandy has the formula. She is the right way. And if you sign up right now, she will pay your power bills for one year and your solar panel payments for one year, and you will receive a $1,000 bonus at signing. That's right, $1,000 signing bonus, no solar panel payments, no power bill payments for one year. Go to AskSolarSandy.com to get started or give her a call at 623-850-8229. That's AskSolarSandy.com. Com. Um, I was just talking about this column from Thomas Frank that I found at The Guardian in regard to the question of whether there will ever be an accounting for what political leaders put us through in an effort to um, arrest and quell COVID. And this is one of the most... Uh, what shall I say, um, serious pieces of self-reflection I've ever seen from a Democrat of great esteem. As I say, he used to be the House Democrat at the Wall Street Journal op-ed page. Thomas Frank wrote numerous books on the Democratic Party. And um, he said, he's writing, what if this crazy story about the lab leak turns out to be true? He says, well, it can't possibly be true because that would mean that it came from the very thing we were told to trust, science and scientists. And what a devastating blow that is to the narrative. He goes on to say the answer, if it is true, is the kind of thing that could obliterate the faith of millions. The last global disaster, the financial crisis of 2008, smashed people's trusts in institutions of capitalism and in the myths of certain things we used to tell ourselves about the new economy and eventually in the elites who ran both American political parties. In the years since and for complicated reasons, liberal leaders have labored to remake themselves into defenders of professional rectitude and established legitimacy in nearly every field. In the reaction to the fool, Trump, Liberalism made a sort of cult out of science, expertise, the university system, executive branch norms, the intelligence community, the State Department, NGOs, news media, and the hierarchy of credentialed achievement in general. Now here we are in the wanting days of disastrous global crisis number two. And COVID is, of course, worse by many orders of magnitude than the mortgage meltdown. 
It has killed millions and ruined lives and disrupted the world economy far more. Should it turn out that scientists and experts and NGOs are villains rather than heroes of this story, we may very well see the expert-worshipping values of modern liberalism go up in a fireball of public anger. Consider the details of the story as we have learned them in the last few weeks. Lab leaks happen. They aren't the result of conspiracies. A lab accident is an accident, as Nathan Robinson points out, whoever he is. They happen all the time in this country and in others, and people die from them. There is evidence that the lab in question, which studies bat coronaviruses, may have been conducting what is called gain-of-function research, a dangerous innovation in which diseases are deliberately made more virulent. By the way, right-wingers didn't dream up gain-of-function All the cool virologists have been doing it for years. Three, there are strong hits that some of the bat virus research at the Wuhan lab was funded in part by the American National Medical Establishment, which is to say the lab leak hypothesis doesn't just implicate China alone. Four or five, there seem to have been astonishing conflicts of interest among the people assigned to get to the bottom of it all. And as we know from Enron and the housing bubble, conflicts of interest are always what trip up the well-credentialed professionals whom liberals insist we must always heed, honor, and obey. Six, the news media in its zealous policing of the boundaries of the permissible insisted that Russiagate was ever so true but that the lab leak hypothesis was false, 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 and woe unto anyone who dared disagree. Facebook indeed would ban you. Reporters gulped down whatever line was most flattering to the experts they were quoting and then insisted that it was 100% right and incontrovertible, that anything else was unhinged Trump folly, that democracy dies when unbelievers get to speak, and so on. Seven, the social media monopolies actually censored posts about the lab leak hypothesis. Of course they did, but we're at war with misinformation, you know, and people need to be brought back to the true and correct faith, as only the experts will tell you it is. Let us pray now for science, intoned a New York Times columnist back at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. The title of his article laid down the foundational faith of Trump-era liberalism. Coronavirus is what you get when you ignore science, was the headline. Ten months later, at the end of a scary article about the history of -of gain-of-function research and its possible role in the still-ongoing pandemic, Nicholas Baker wrote as follows, quote, This may be the great scientific meta-experiment of the 21st century. Could a world full of scientists do all kinds of reckless recombinant things with viral diseases for many years and successfully avoid a serious outbreak? The hypothesis was that, yes, it was doable. The risk was worth taking. There would be no pandemic, close quote, except that there was. If it does indeed turn out that the lab leak hypothesis is the right explanation for how it began, then the common people of the world have been forced into a real-life experiment at unbearable cost. There is a moral earthquake on the way. Because if the hypothesis is right, Frank writes, it will soon start to dawn on people that our mistake was not insufficient reverence for scientists or inadequate respect for expertise or not enough censorship on Facebook. It was a failure to think critically about all of the above. 
and to understand there is no such thing as absolute expertise. Think of all the disasters of recent years, economic neoliberalism, destructive trade policies, the Iraq war, the housing bubble, banks that are too big to fail, mortgage-backed securities, the Hillary campaign of 2016. All these disasters brought to you by the total self-assured unanimity of the highly educated people who are supposed to know what they're doing, plus the total complacency of the highly educated people who are supposed to be supervising them. Then again, maybe I'm wrong to roll out all this speculation. Maybe the lab leak hypothesis will be 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 disproven. But even if it inches closer to being confirmed, we can guess what the next turn of the narrative will be. It was a perfect storm, the experts will say. Who could have known? And besides, the origins of the pandemic don't matter anymore. Go back to sleep. I bet Hugh Hallman has a thing or two to say about all that. He is our resident epistemologist, after all, which is about how you gain wisdom. We'll ask him when we come back. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-5080-960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Let me just say another word about trusting the scientists for a second because this is not just about physical science or what some people often refer to as the hard scientists. Bill, would you get me Ibram Kendi, please? This is the political scientist that everyone in education right now and in cultural and social history is supposed to trust. So if Fauci is the equivalent or the Wuhan Virology Lab is the equivalent of modern-day physical science, this is the estimable Ibram Kendi who uh, the Department of Education is using to cram CR critical race theory down the curricula of our country and who is uh, the recipient of millions and millions and millions of dollars from our social media, including a $10 million gift from Jack Dorsey at the probably most one of the most elite American gatherings you can have stuffy pretentious I say that because I've been and participated and I know how to do that if I have to but one of the most respective stuffy pretentious places in the world the Aspen Ideas Festival Ibram Kendi asked if he would please just define racism so we can start there. Here is the great professor's response. You talked about the importance of defining racism, but, I, but I, unless I missed it, which is possible, I didn't, I didn't hear your personal definition. Is there, is there one that you would offer us? Like, how do you define racism? Sure. So racism, I would define it um, as a collection uh, of racist policies that lead to racial inequity that are substantiated by racist ideas. <laughs> there's a reason there's laughter. Sure. A, a Stop it for a second. The reason uh, there's uh, laughter is no academic at even the most poorly rated junior college in America, and I don't mean to take a hit on junior colleges, but on the most at the, at, at the most poorly rated junior college in America, not even an academic faculty program would pursue a further interview for an appointment with a person who answered the question with three self-defining answers within it. Keep going. Racist policies that lead to racial inequity that are substantiated by racist ideas. That's his definition. And anti-racism, anti-racism. is a pretty simple using the same terms. 
anti-racism is a collection of anti-racist policies leading to racial, anybody want to take a guess? Equity that are substantiated by anti-racist ideas. Anybody want to take a guess? He sounds, he's talking as if he's a, he's this great popular musician and everyone knows the lyrics to his hit of the past 40 years at a live concert. Um, three self-defining terms within the definition using the same word. And this is who is teaching our children. And this is who Netflix gave a documentary to teach our children at the ages of six and seven about what it means to be racist. I show you the times. The great Hugh Hallman, when we come right back, and we will be right back. <laughs> 